take the first step. That's it. That first step is always the hardest, right? But if you start on that path and then you just keep taking step after step, you'll get to where you want to go. That was Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc. We'll hear more from Nick on episode 18 of the Hopeful Hoosier podcast. I'm your host, Andy Dix. Running a business in today's environment is certainly challenging. Now imagine running a business that has a mission to be both profitable and purposeful. Nick Jaworski founded Circle Social Inc. as one of Indiana's very first benefit corporations. His firm has a very specific niche market, and you've probably never heard of it. Circle Social Inc. is an outreach marketing and organizational consulting firm based in Indianapolis, and it's focused on the behavioral health market. What excites me about this company is their dedication to doing good in a profitable and sustainable way. Nick Jaworski has helped build startups across the globe from Turkey to China to the U.S. He is a passionate recovery advocate, and he sits on the board of Above and Beyond Recovery Center, as well as advises the Behavioral Health Association of Providers. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Nick as we get an insider's view of what it's like to manage a business with a triple bottom line, social, environmental, and financial. I started my conversation with Nick by asking him to share why he decided to incorporate as a benefit corporation in Indiana. Sure. So I don't know if we were the first, but we were definitely one of the first three. I think it just depended on which order they processed that paperwork in. (laughs) But yeah, that was very important to me when I started the company. I'm a bit of an idealist, very passionate about what I'm trying to do, changing the world, you know, making a difference, uh, having an impact, that kind of thing. And so when I started the business, I was familiar with a B Corp, and that was an expensive option for me at the time. You have to go through a pretty lengthy process. You have to pay, I think it's a couple thousand if I remember, but I didn't really have any revenue at the time, right? Because I was starting the company and we didn't really have any history to submit documentation for. And then I started researching and found out that there was this benefit core certification or incorporation that you could get through the state. And it turned out at the time that Indiana had just opened it. And so this was brand new for Indiana. I said, okay, this is what I want to do. And the reason for that is there's really zero benefit to it from a business standpoint, from a tax standpoint, all that stuff is the same. You don't get any benefits for being a a benefit core. In fact, you have additional uh, work that you have to do. So we are required by law to have a triple bottom line. We've got financial responsibility, we've got social responsibility, and then there's actually like an environmental piece in there as well. So everything that we do has to meet those requirements and that's reported to the state and they, you know, approve or deny our benefit core status. So the reason for me is one that was just personally important to me to have that. But then this was the first business I had started. I didn't know where it would go. I wasn't quite familiar with the business world in terms of being an owner. And I knew that by doing this, that would keep the company on track. So if I ever sold it or if I brought in investors or anything like that, again, by law, they're required to have this triple bottom line. So we wouldn't just be be focusing on owner and shareholder value, which was important to me. And so by law, you have to try to be not only profitable, but also purposeful 
in in how you do business. Correct. And and what is the the cause that your business supports as a part of your benefits corp requirements? It's very broad from a legal standpoint. You know, so when we first started the company, we just gave back to the community, right? We donated up to 10% of revenue, or not revenue, but profit to various organizations. We did volunteer work. I paid the staff an hour a week for them to do volunteer work. So there were certain things I did that built in this community service component. But now as the company's evolved, we are almost 100% focused on behavioral health. So all of our philanthropy, our charity, our volunteering goes to behavioral health organizations. So I'm on a couple of boards. I am on a community board here for the community foundation in Hendricks County, which is where I live. And I'm also on a board for a nonprofit treatment program up in Chicago. It's a very innovative program, probably one of the most unique in the country, actually, in terms of providing very cutting edge behavioral health services to the homeless community. And then I also advise the Behavioral Health Association providers out of California, and we do national work around lobbying and legislation and things like that for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. That's kind of where my focus has been. And then we donate to all those organizations as well, with a new one being that we just added on here in Indianapolis, since most of the listeners are probably here in Indy, Recovery Cafe, which is a really interesting program downtown that acts as kind of a linkage program and provides a lot of support to people seeking recovery. And right now it's in the downtown area. Speak to the social entrepreneur that's out there that's thinking about starting their organization. And what have you learned? Why would you maybe recommend or or what cautions would you have for them about going the same route of being a benefit corp here in Indiana? If this is something that they want to do, I would say just go for it. You know, whether you're going to start a normal company or a benefits corporation, as I said, there's really no difference from a legal standpoint, from a taxation standpoint. So it's really just a personal choice. And then just realizing that there's some additional requirements around reporting in terms of how you have a positive impact on your community or on certain causes. There's really no obstacle to that. You know, like I said, just go for it. The challenge that I think people find sometimes is this melding of passion, purpose, and profit. And they're worried that, hey, if I'm committing to, you know, donating a certain percentage of revenue or giving volunteer time to my employees, that can be a challenge in the beginning because you don't have a lot of revenue. But as long as you're fiscally responsible with the company and more importantly, understanding that purpose and passion drives profit. This is something that I've just had reinforced to me over and over again as I've built the business But before that, I worked for Disney in one of my many roles previously, and Disney was very focused on that. So Disney had what they called the Disney value chain. And it was always the fact that we provide great care to our guests, which is our customers. We provide great care to our cast members, which was the staff in Disney lingo. They had a lot of lingo. (laughs) Uh, But when you provided this great care to your team, then they provided great customer service to the customers and then that led to revenue and growth and it was a model that really just hit home with me in a very positive manner but i can tell you that i've seen it again and again it's not just in my business but in all the businesses we work with so we work with some of the largest behavioral health providers in the world at this point as well as some of the largest addiction treatment providers in the country they're doing anywhere from 300 to a billion dollars a year in revenue And I can tell you, because we get very deep into their business models, we get into their financial modeling projections, their profit and loss statements, their clinical programming, their community outreach, their marketing, everything. We get in pretty deep. 
And the companies and organizations that are the most successful are ones that have their purpose and their passion driving the profit. The reason for that is when you are focused on your purpose and your passion, you optimize for creating a better experience for your customers or your clients. And that's ultimately what drives revenue. So when people are passionate about that, that's their goal, right? When people get really focused on the profit end of things and just on their revenue, then they optimize for revenue. They start to make bad choices. They say, okay, this will help us optimize revenue, which might be a choice that makes sense for the company because it looks like you're making more money, but it pulls something away from the customer. And while that won't have an immediate impact, it always does long-term in terms of business growth. That's what I think I really want listeners to understand is that when you have that really focused passion, it will drive profitability without you even really having to try to do it. Because you're so focused on innovating, providing good customer service, providing a better product, constantly building something better, you by default become better than your competition. The team gets rolling in the same direction. It's very easy to align the team around it. Oftentimes, a lot of businesses are creating these systems and processes where there's all these checklists and you know they're trying to follow up on staff and make sure they're doing things right. And that's actually important, but at the end of the day, most decisions can't be made on a checklist. If I could create a checklist that got people to do the job, well, then I could just hire high school students to do the work. And that doesn't work, right? I need very skilled, talented staff that makes critical decisions in the moment on an every you know, day changing reality. And so those strategic decisions are tough to make unless you have a really clear goalpost and that goalpost is your mission. At Circle Social, you, you've got a very diverse staff uh, to do a bunch of different sort of things, everything from creatives to operational people, et cetera. And so a lot of different personalities, I'm sure, and and a lot of different, uh, different conflicting maybe values and things as you're trying to get everybody, as you said, rowing, rowing in the same direction. And, and has being a benefit corp and having this combined passion and purpose been helpful or or somewhat of an additional challenge in bringing the right workforce here to Indiana and, and getting them working together? Hmm. So finding talent for what we do in Indiana has been a challenge. You know, the university systems do not kick out very strong marketing or consulting graduates. They don't have a strong background in behavioral health. So that has been a challenge for me in terms of location. But in terms of finding people that are passionate about what we do in our mission, no, it's been quite easy and it has strongly benefited us as an organization. So our turnover rate is incredibly low. We have a very high retention of staff. And the reason for that, I believe, is, I mean, one, we try to support staff as much as possible and provide a good work environment and benefits and all that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, I think they really care about what they're trying to do. Most of my staff, I'd say almost all, have some kind of personal experience with themselves or with family or close friends with mental health and addiction issues. They really value the work that we do. And that's rare, right? So if I'm a web developer, or if I'm running search engine optimization, if I'm running a paid media marketing campaign, you know, most places you're going to be running this for an e-commerce company selling t-shirts or a roofing company trying to find customers. And obviously nothing wrong with that, but you're not going to be very passionate about that, right? Whereas my staff is really passionate about what we do. We're very focused on making sure that we add value. And that's the key message that I always send to the team 
is everything we do needs to add value to our clients as well as the potential patients that we're reaching. Any communication that we put out there, any page on a website, any marketing campaign, any image, the person that reads that, whether they become a patient of our client or not, they should walk away more educated, more informed than they did before they encountered our content. And so that kind of value add drives a lot of passion. Yeah, I think it has been quite beneficial to us in terms of keeping people focused, keeping people moving in the same direction. Everyone's aligned on values, you know, so the value system and the culture is definitely growing in that same direction. We'll continue our conversation with Nick Jaworski, the founder and CEO of Circle Social Inc. after this brief message. And now a word from our sponsor, AD Growth Advisors Incorporated, an Indianapolis-based executive coaching and advisory firm. In 2019, the American Marketing Association released a comprehensive coaching study that revealed that nearly half of companies in North America use executive coaches. The study also found that coaching is associated with higher performance, and most of the coaching assignments focused on leadership development. I'm a board-certified executive coach, and I work with founders, CEOs, and senior executives of conscious capitalists, B Corps, and nonprofits. And I've found that a helpful ABC approach to personal and professional development and growth can be very effective. Working together, we create an individual growth plan that addresses the most valued needs in the areas of A, attitude, beliefs, mindsets, and motivation, B, behaviors, and C, core competencies and capabilities. If you're ready to get growing again and stay ahead of your role demands, then let's talk soon. You can call me directly at 317-538-3231. Once again, that's 317-538-3231. Or visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. Now back to my conversation with the CEO of Circle Social, Inc., Nick Jaworski, on the Hopeful Hoosier podcast. So Circle Social is one of these terrific companies here in the state of Indiana that most people have never heard of and probably never will hear of because of your very specific niche. And so could you give us quickly your your elevator pitch to explain sort of the mission, vision, and values for your company? You're right. I don't think most people will have ever heard of Circle Social because we just operate in behavioral health. And when you talk to most marketing organizations, they're jacks of all trades. They, you know, they're trying to do everything to everyone. And our one of our unique value propositions is that we deeply understand the field and the industry. So we understand how it connects to the bottom line. We know how it connects to patients. We know how it connects to clinical programming. It's just something that most marketing organizations don't understand. They tend to be very fluffy, right? They produce a lot of content. They're focused on, you know, building relationships on social media. And for us, those things are only a piece of the puzzle, unless those things translate into helping connect patients to the right quality care, then we're not doing our job. So elevator pitch, I mean, embrace, engage, enrich is really kind of our slogan. And we operate that for everything that we do. It's the way we look at community. It's the way we look at the team. It's the way we look at our clients and the patients and the communities of our clients. What we are really known for is our ability to analyze and understand the space and be able to help clients with growth strategies. 
So we make sure that there's alignment and integrity between every department in their business, starting with their main service, which is their clinical programming. Oftentimes, as organizations get bigger, they get siloed. The marketing team doesn't connect to the call team, which doesn't connect to the clinical program. And so that lack of alignment creates a lot of problems with clients and patients because the marketing team says one thing, which may not be accurately reflecting what they get in the program. That creates dissatisfaction when they arrive. It can lead to things like bad word of mouth, bad online reviews, which have very serious impacts on these programs. So because we understand all the different pieces and then we understand the space, we were able to really get a lot of traction and bring on a lot of heavy hitting clients fairly early on in terms of our growth. And so at this point, we have more data than any company in the behavioral health space that I'm aware of. So we have over $2 billion worth of behavioral health operating and marketing data. And that repository allows us to really comb through everything and say, hey, what works, what doesn't work? How, what percentage of revenue should you be spending on labor versus real estate versus standard operating expenses? What is your cost per acquisition for a patient off of marketing channels, whether it's Google ads, search engine optimization, or Facebook campaigns? How much should you pay your staff and what's a normal going rate in different geographies? Does local marketing versus statewide marketing versus national marketing work better? Like we have all of that data. And so like we partnered with HSBC's Behavioral Healthcare Investing Division, which is one of the, the fifth largest bank in the world. We partnered with KKR, which is one of the largest private equity firms in the country. And so they seek our services for what we do in behavioral health because we have all that data. And then on top of it, we understand it, right? And we have a hands-on qualitative experience because every, you know, I'm in a different provider Every two weeks, COVID has changed things, but I'm on the road all the time. So I'm always flying out somewhere. I'm with some provider across the country. And so because we have that hands-on experience that combines with our quantitative knowledge of the data sets, we're able to really make a sophisticated analysis of what's working and what's not working. And so people will seek out our services for that reason. And COVID-19 has no doubt created a lot of unexpected unfortunate opportunity for the behavioral health community as people have been isolated and uh, dealing with loneliness issues and, and increasing substance abuse issues. And how have you been forced to respond to this uptick in demand in the sector? Yeah, it's been really unfortunate, right? From a from a business standpoint, it's been good for us, right? Because we've actually added a couple million in revenue this year. But when you look at it from the standpoint of people needing services, there's been an explosion. So suicide rates have doubled in some states. Depression rates across the U.S. are up 33%. Anxiety is up 18%. Overdoses are, are up 42%. So there's just massive kind of mental health and addiction crisis happening across the country as we speak. And it's only been getting worse over, over the year so on our end, we're helping clients really understand that. Uh, we had to help them shift to telehealth models since obviously a lot of facilities were not offering inpatient services for a certain period of time, helping them understand what protocols were working and then communicating out to the communities and saying, hey, look, you can still seek support and services. We know you're struggling right now. We know there's a lot going on. 
help is still available, whether it's in person and here's the safety protocols our clients are using, or here are telehealth options. So that's required a lot of shifting on our end to really communicate that message out there. But then we help clients understand what's happening across the country. So real easy examples, a lot of clients have come to us and say, okay, well, now we're doing this telehealth thing. We never did that before. And so let's market this across the entire U.S. because why not, right? You know, they're doing it online. They're doing it from their home. We don't need them to come into our facility. You know, we sit down with them. We say, okay, well, that's a really bad idea because marketing to the entire nation and all 330 million people in it is a hell of a lot more expensive than trying to market to, you know, the Houston area, for example. It's about 500 times more expensive. <laughs> so do you have that money? Do you have that revenue? And then marketing doesn't drive sales and business. A lot of people make that mistake. Uh, it's a very common mistake within the business world, whether it's a new business owner or even sophisticated executives. They think that marketing is somehow going to drive their growth. And the reality is that marketing is simply amplification of a really quality business or really quality product or service. So if you have no reputation in a given area, then it's going to cost you a lot more to enter into that new market from a marketing standpoint, because you have to educate, you have to build trust, and then you have to get people to pick up the phone and decide to come into you which will also be harder if you're farther away, right? Less trust because they're like, who's this weird company in Texas calling me rather than a company here in Indiana that I, I can see and go to and things like that. So we've done a lot of work with them around that. And then also really just analyzing trends. So we did a deep dive when COVID first hit and looked at comparable events, you know, natural disasters, disease in other countries, wars, conflict, that kind of thing. And we saw and analyzed the trends of what happened from a mental health standpoint. And so what you see normally in most countries is about six months from the date of the initial start of the event or the impact, people will start flooding services. So there's this delay, right? Where people either don't seek care or they don't know where to go or whatever the situation is. But then suddenly your community mental health providers, your, your PCPs, your primary care physicians, your hospitals get overwhelmed with mental health and addiction need, and they don't know where to send these people because that's not their expertise. So we've coached a lot of our clients to say, hey, okay, this is where the demand's going to be, and this is where people are going to go. So you need to start building these relationships and these communication channels now so that when all these people start coming in, you're ready to reach out a hand and support them. You've got a fascinating, very micro niche here of trying to market to a population that probably doesn't want the service initially. They, they don't want to admit they have the need or the problem necessarily. Can you describe without releasing uh, your, your magic and secret sauce here, what's the typical journey that someone makes before they make the decision to finally seek professional services? So you're absolutely right. The numbers are that, you know, up to 20% of the population is struggling with an addiction or mental health issue at any given time. In addiction only, you're looking at 20, 23 million people a year that are struggling with a, a diagnosable, you know, disorder is the way the DSM would define it. But the reality is that only about 11% of those people actually receive services and seek services. And that's not because services are, aren't available. There is a misconception there. Sometimes there is a, a lack of providers in a community or an area, and that is a problem. But for the most part, people don't want to seek treatment. They're, they're not interested in going to get care 
for whatever the issue is. And there's lots of reasons for that. You know, it's stigma. They don't believe that the problem's big enough. They just don't feel like it's appropriate for them. They have concerns about being a sterile hospital setting. You know, people think over like one flu of the cuckoo's next is how a lot of people view treatment, which isn't the reality. You know, treatment centers are pretty cozy and homey feeling and very supportive these days. So anyway, a lot of people don't seek care. We deal with when we're doing community outreach standpoint, either people are reaching out to, like I said, the hospital system or their primary care physician, and the hospitals and the primary care physicians, you know, aren't equipped to handle more severe uh, manifestations of mental health or addiction issues. So they'll refer out. So we do a lot of support and linking around that. There's a lot of crisis calls. Again, because of the stigma, you know, let's say that you have a teenage son that is struggling with heroin addiction. Well, you're very unlikely to want to share that information with family. You're unlikely to want to share that information with your church. Even when you do, there tends to be a lot of stigma around it. And, you know, kind of people will be more likely to look down on you in those situations. So people tend to really struggle alone. And because of that, they use Google for a lot of research and information. So we do a lot of marketing on Google ads and then it's people in crisis calling, you know, their son came home, they found him overdosed, you know, in the bedroom or he came home drunk for the fifth time or whatever it is. And so this has been going on for months or years by this point, they rarely call the first time. It's usually been a developing situation. And so it's a crisis call and they say, okay, you know, my son's ready to go or I'm pushing him in or whatever the situation is, what do I need to do to get him in? So that's a big piece of what we're doing is making sure that we're there um, at the right time in the right place and then helping our clients, you know, have those compassionate conversations on the phone to let people know what the next steps are. Uh, that's a big deal. And then on the other side, there's a big education component. So we do what's called direct response marketing through channels like Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And what these channels do is they allow you to do behavioral-based retargeting. So, you know, we could do a whole hour or five on the scary data that's collected within these platforms. But basically every time you click on something, every time you visit a web page, that information is, is tracked and recorded, right? Not with your name, not with your data, but you know, just from a, like a cookie standpoint using your IP address. When someone reads an article, we know that, and then we can send them a follow-up article, right? So if we see them read an article on addiction, then we can send them a follow-up article on what quality addiction treatment what looks like. And then we know if they read that one. So if they read that one, we can send them a follow-up saying, you know, testimonials from the provider and other alumni that have been through the program and letting them know that it worked for them. And, you know, it's a good program for these kind of people or these kind of problems. And then again, we can see if they watch the video we can see how much of the video they watch. We can see how much time they spent on the page. You know, like I said, it gets kind of scary from a data tracking standpoint, but very, very granular data on what people are doing and what they're engaging with. And so we use that behavioral based strategies to then help them work through a decision-making process faster. Because our goal is to get them care before it becomes a serious issue. And that's your biggest problem is so many people wait. Right. And so if we can get them care and say, hey, okay, I'm going to get ahead of this. I'm going to seek treatment for myself or a loved one before I'm hitting bottom, before I've lost my job, I've lost my insurance, all these other kind of things. That's going to help that individual. And so we help them try to make that decision or at least analyze those options and weigh them and decide what the best choice is for them through the way that we do the, the retargeting strategies online. So your company is growing uh, at a really rapid pace. Yeah. And what do you think is sort of your ideal vision for the future? What's it look like? Great question. So 
our vision and my vision has always been to reshape the field of behavioral health. There are a lot of challenges in it. Business models aren't very good. A lot of waste in terms of revenue and finances, which leads to an inability to grow an inability to provide higher quality services or hire better staff. You know, so you have to have good revenue to be able to do these things right for the patients. So that's a business model standpoint. Clinical programming hasn't really changed in a couple of decades. It's really kind of stuck in a rut. And so I have a lot of focus when we go into providers about giving them suggestions on providing better clinical programming. And then we also get really deep into the data and the data really informs outcomes and treatment. So within healthcare in general, not just behavioral health, there has been a lack of evidence-based outcomes that's informing how treatment is provided. None of this data has really been collected. And because it's not collected, we can't tell you which approach is better than any other. I'm really focused on building out these data models. So moving forward, what we're really trying to do is build out that additional data set and then allow the providers to get access to all of that data so that they can make what's called feedback-informed clinical care so that their program gets better and better. And everything that we do is just focus on reshaping and improving the space. So I'm always like, what information can we provide? How can we get out there? How can we help people understand addiction and mental health? How can we help them understand what good treatment looks like? Because that's important. There are unfortunately a number of low quality providers out there. And so you have to be very careful about where you go. So anything we can do to improve the space is, is really the goal. And the business growth just comes along through that process because we're always trying to find innovative solutions to problems that patients are facing, to problems that facilities are facing. And as we find solutions to those problems, that attracts clients. What excites you most about the future you're creating? You know, I'm really passionate about the content we provide and the content we provide to the field, both in terms of, you know, what we're putting out there on podcasts and blogs and emails and things like that. But then also with the hands-on work, I, you know, I'm talking to CEOs all the time. I'm talking to clinicians in the space all the time and just sharing ideas and sharing tactics. And so that growth really excites me. So let's talk a little bit about how you came into this space because your, your passion is just palpable. Tell the story of how you became this person. So there's a couple different pieces to it. So I went through addiction treatment programming when I was like 18 or 19. I had a couple of DUIs, court system pushed me in, and it was a really negative experience. The clinical program that I went to was just not run very well, untrained counselors. I mean, literally what happened is you'd, you'd walk in and it was like an AA meeting. Most people are probably familiar with AA meetings from movies or personal experience or whatever. And the counselor would come in and then you'd go around in a circle and talk about whatever the counselor wanted to talk about that day. Most of the time it was why you should stop, you know, drinking alcohol. And some of us were done with that and some of us weren't. You know, I found out later on, actually, a lot of people in that program that I'd gone to were court ordered or they were pushed in by an employer or pushed in by a family member. And almost half the group would actually go out to the bar after after the clinical session and they didn't invite me because i was only 18 but that's that's the problem with a lot of programs out there is they don't really engage the people coming into treatment so that really negative experience of going through that treatment program stuck with me for a long time when i started the company that's what i was looking at is we started working with addiction treatment providers right from the get-go that was actually just random just two of our first clients were addiction treatment providers we had another one that did healthcare services 
what I saw as I built the company is one, I was really passionate about reshaping the space. I saw this opportunity. I'm like, well, there's a big problem here. We can help solve it. And we're going to solve it from this consulting marketing end at first. But I think we can have a deeper impact over time, which we have been able to do. One other piece of it was the addiction treatment space. There are some shady players in it, unfortunately. There, there are providers out there that just don't care. They saw a revenue opportunity, they built a treatment provider and they could care less about the clinical quality of the programming or you know who's coming in or, or anything like that. That really bothered me because when we started getting into the space, I learned all about that. And I was like, well, we gotta get these guys out of here. And one way you can do that is by identifying really quality providers and helping them because the people that were in it for the wrong reasons from the business end tended to be better at business, right? They were tended to be better at marketing. So the least quality providers tended to be the ones you were most likely to see on Google, the most likely to see through an ad, you know, on social media, whatever the case may be. And these other providers that weren't good at marketing had their hearts in the right place, but they were tended to be clinicians. Maybe they didn't understand business, they didn't understand marketing. So we fit that gap. We came in and said, hey, we're going to support you on the marketing and the business growth and, you know, areas that you're not strong. And we're going to help you beat out these guys that don't care about the clinical aspect. So we're going to make sure that patients get connected to the right quality care. I think those were kind of the main elements that, that allowed me to build the business and that have kept my passion in that direction. You've been in Indiana now as an adopted uh, Hoosier for five years. You could run your business anywhere. You, you have a global perspective. You've lived around the world. You've worked around the world. You still do. What makes you think about staying and putting roots here in the heartland? And, and what would you say to somebody else that's thinking about starting a business? Why should they think about planting themselves here? Yeah, I love Indianapolis. So like you said, I mean, I've lived around the world, right? I've lived in the Czech Republic and Turkey and Vietnam and China. Uh, before I came to Indianapolis, I was in Chicago and then I'm originally from Wisconsin. When we originally came to Indianapolis, it was actually through a job. I was working in education still at the time. And I came down here with KinderCare. So they're the largest provider of uh, daycare services in the country. I used to be a turnaround guy for school system. So if a school system was failing, I would go in and fix it. So one of their programs over on the west side of town was really struggling. It was on probation by the state, had been for a while. Um, it was a tough area of town, a lot of gun violence and drugs and things like that. And they said, hey, can you come here and fix it? And I said, Indianapolis? I'm like, huh. I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> but, you know, they paid for me to come down and check out the city and stuff like that. So I came down with my family at the time and we actually really liked it. So we were looking for something with a little bit of an international community because we had lived abroad for a long time. So that was important to us. And also my wife's Turkish. So we really wanted that perspective. And we found a strong international community here, but we also just really liked the pace. Chicago was super expensive. It was super busy. Traffic was horrible all the time. The cost of living was super expensive. When we came here, we realized that it was a much more slower pace of life. I really like the Midwest. Again, I was born in Wisconsin. I've lived all over, all over the world and the Midwest is still one of my favorite places. So we really like that culture. And then weather was actually a part of it, just the fact that I, I like having four seasons, but I don't like the Wisconsin or the Chicago winter where it's like six, seven months. It just goes on forever. <laughs> it's really cold. 
So we just really fell in love here. And, you know, like you said, I I run the business virtually now. And we did that before COVID because I'm on the road so much. We just ended up saying, why have an office expense since I'm never in it, since I'm always off somewhere else in the country. We shut the office down, I don't know, mid 2019, something like that. It's just the people here because we really love the people and it's central. I can get anywhere in the country really easily. Again, real low cost of living. I mean, my brother lives in New York. What he pays for like a thousand square foot apartment is more than I pay for our three acres of land here in Indianapolis, you know? So it's just like, that makes a lot of sense to us. And from a business standpoint as well, you know, good people, really strong collaboration between government nonprofits and the business community. And that has something that has, that has been really beneficial to me in terms of finding mentors and learning and just seeing things work, you know, the tagline's a state that works. And I, I really believe that's true. And it allows me to run a business really efficiently. My costs here are much lower than if I was trying to run something from like New York or California, for example. Uh, so all of that works and, and, you know, the family loves it here too. So we will, we will never leave Indianapolis. I, I love that statement. It's, it sounds like the roots are, are really taking hold in a good way. And we love to hear that here in the state. Every story, though, always has a few unexpected plot twists in it. And I'm sure that starting uh, Circle Social and getting it up to speed and running it is not without its fair share of adversity and challenges. Could you share maybe a, a pivotal story that you had to overcome a challenge and, and how did you do it and what did you learn from it? I can give a couple examples. I think most important, and you know, I'm sure other guests on your show have said the same, but failure and learning from failure is essential to success. Every single business owner I know, or even if not business, whether you're trying to be the best you can in a sport or you know the best parent you can be, people fail over and over again. And you, what we say is you have to fail forward, right? So fall forward, learn from your mistakes and keep going. And that is just what allows people to be successful because if you don't make the mistakes, you don't know what's wrong. You don't know how to not go in that direction again. So many people just give up when they make a mistake or they have a failure and you just have to keep pushing through. Persistence is probably one of the number one qualities to being successful as long as you don't make the same mistakes over and over again. The real challenges that I think I faced was before that, when I started off in education, you know, for example, like I worked with some Chinese partners in Hong Kong to build an international bilingual immersion school. And it was a nightmare. It was, it was horrible. <laughs> Chinese business is very different. And so I had been working for Disney in China for a couple of years. And at Disney, I was, I was somewhat sheltered from the Chinese business community because, you know, it was a Western company and they really had a strong arm and kind of enforcing their, their culture and their ways on things for the most part. So when I got into this Chinese company with these partners, I mean, everything was under the table, everything was bribes, everything was like lying to, to patients and partners. And so most of my time was spent fighting with the board because yeah, I'd lived in China for a while. So, you know, I was familiar with some of this stuff happening. And so when I got in, I said, okay, well, here's my, here's my requirements to come into this position. You know, I expect us to be 100% transparent. Here's how we're gonna operate. You know, and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And then I get in there and it's complete opposite. So I basically just spent six months like being in fights with the board until they finally just said, okay, we're done. You know, we're not doing this anymore. You're, you're out. And so then, you know, I'm sitting in China. I don't have an income or a salary. 
And I'm just like, well, geez, what do we do now? And so you just had to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and learn from the experience and say, okay, well, I know I don't want to really work with the Chinese business anymore. <laughs> so what do we want to do? And so I started reaching out to some contacts in the States and, you know, got some employment going that way. And we flew back and rebuilt our lives here. But that was hard, right? It was a huge challenge. We had to fly across the world. We had to pack up all our belongings. We had to leave all of our friends and kind of everything that we built in China behind and then restart in a completely new city because I had to go where the job was at that time, right? So we landed in Chicago, not because I wanted to go to Chicago, but just because that's where the job offer was. And we didn't have a whole lot of money at the time. So we were really living hand to mouth for the most part. And so that, that happened before when the 2008 financial crisis hit, I was coming back from Vietnam and moving back to Turkey and a job lined up and a house lined up. A lot, a lot of employers for expats provided housing. And literally two days before I was supposed to land in the country, they said, oh, hey, uh, this crisis hit. We're changing everything. We don't have a house for you and you're not hired. You're going to have to find your own job. And so I literally landed in Istanbul two days later with about $400 to my name. I had no money. We were working on our marriage. I was engaged at the time. Um, so I was staying with my wife's family about an hour and a half outside of Istanbul. And so I would have to get up at 5 a.m. every single day get on the train to Istanbul, which was an hour, hour and a half, and then go job hunting, you know? And then eventually I found a job, but because I couldn't afford to go into an apartment, this job didn't provide housing. I still had to live with my wife's parents for another, I think it was four or five months. So for four or five months, I got up every single day, you know, 5 a.m., traveled to Istanbul, worked until what, 9 p.m., and then traveled back. You know, it was just exhausting. But you, you gotta do what you gotta do to make it work. And all of the, all of that struggle, all those challenges have really forged me and allowed me to be the person that I am. And something that I, I like to bring up in these conversations is that's the same way that we internally look at addiction and mental health. Because people will say, oh, well, you know, you were struggling with addiction issues when you were young. You know, how did you overcome that challenge? And I'll say, I, I loved it. The ability to look back and, and see that success and see what I've become and built since then. And I, I wouldn't be where I am without those failures and, and the pushes and the struggle that I had to make. And so you know, I often tell people, I mean, imagine that you're really struggling with addiction. So I'm going to put you on the street. You have no money. You have broken all your family ties. They don't want to talk to you anymore. You know, you have no health insurance. And on top of this, you have a $500 a week cocaine habit. Now go figure it out. 99% of people in the US can't do that. When people do start to find recovery and recover from severe mental health or addiction issues, they have this resiliency that they've demonstrated. They have so much that they've learned about themselves and the challenges that they can overcome and how resourceful they can be um, and just what they can survive and work through, right? The failures that they can overcome, that should be seen as a source of strength and not as a period of weakness. And sometimes people look at past failures as a weakness and they shouldn't. They should look at it as, you know, how much stronger did I become because of this? So Nick, what would you say is your personal definition of success then? I guess it's twofold. It's one, providing for yourself and for your family. And then it's two, having a positive impact on the world and changing it. I think those two things are, are probably the most important. There's a lot of status symbols around success you know, that people seek out. And I, I'm just not really interested in those. What I'm really interested in is how do you have a positive impact? And then that translates to the wider community as well as to yourself and your family. So what makes you most hopeful about the future then? 
like I said, I'm always optimistic. There's always a solution to a problem, right? So whether you don't like the political environment or you're worried about climate change or it's COVID, right? At the end of the day, there are solutions out there and there's going to be pain and there's going to be struggle with anything, but that's part of life. And so I am very hopeful because I think people are, are resilient and I think people are resourceful. And while we will continue to encounter problems as a community and as a, I think a race on, on the entire planet, we're eventually going to be able to find the solutions to overcome those challenges. So that, that makes me hopeful all the time. So what would you hope someone takes away from our conversation as, as maybe the most important thing to remember about what we've talked about today? I think that you can really achieve whatever your goals are as long as you're one, willing to be persistent and two, understanding the sacrifices that you'll probably have to make along the way. Again, it's about finding that balance. We can't have our cake and eat it too. <laughs> we, we really have to choose what our, our, our focus and our passions are. And like, even for me, I, I do spend a lot of quality time with my daughter and my family and that takes my time away from business growth. I mean, I, I guarantee you we could be two to three times the size we are today if I spent all day every day focusing on the business, but that's not of interest to me. That's not what I want to do. You know, if you want to start something, if you want to grow something, just stay focused, stay persistent. And as long as you learn from any mistakes that come along the way, you will absolutely achieve success. And I think I do want to mention something in there because I deal with this all the time with, with clients and, and newer people trying to start companies. They're so focused on revenue and you know money as a success metric, and they want to be successful tomorrow. And that, that almost never happens. I mean, when you see people that are successful, there are often decades of work and build that went into them, whether it was the life experiences that gave them the skills that they needed, or whether it was just the time to learn the field and learn the ins and outs of what is you know, success in their particular chosen path. And being realistic and understanding your numbers, you know, I talk to these people that want to want to make a million dollars a year, while 0.3% of the U.S. population makes, you know, a million dollars a year. It's a very, very unrealistic goal. Most businesses grow at a rate of somewhere between 10 and 20% a year. So if you want to go from $100,000 in revenue to a million dollars in revenue, you should expect that it's going to take you a couple of years at a 10 to a 20% growth rate. You're not going to do that overnight, which is what people always hear about it. And I think in the stories and the news and yeah, every once in a blue moon, that kind of stuff happens. But if you're realistic about what actual growth paths are and how much work you have to put in to achieve those goals and that success, you know, just be patient. That, that patience will really help you be successful in the long term. Nick, what challenge would you like to issue to our listener who's been with us through our conversation to challenge them to do their part to make their positive difference for us here in the state of Indiana? Take the first step. That's it. That first step is always the hardest. But if you start on that path and then you just keep taking step after step, you'll get to where you want to go. I think there's so many people that I talk to that are afraid of taking that first step, especially, and then sometimes the next step. You know, they, they're scared to hire staff. They're scared to ask for what they're worth or ask for what they need to actually be able to provide a quality service. Um, they're scared to learn new things, right? They're, they're scared to ask people for help. And you just have to take that step. Leave your inhibitions aside, take the step and make the impact you want to make. And that's what makes you a hopeful Hoosier. Yeah.
Special thanks to my guest, Nick Jaworski. You can learn more about Circle Social Inc. at circlesocialinc.com. If you found value in today's episode, I would greatly appreciate your positive ratings and comments wherever you download your podcasts. It greatly helps us to spread our hopeful message. And if you know someone who is doing something extraordinary to help build a better and brighter future for us here in the state of Indiana, and you think they would make a great future guest on the Hopeful Hoosier podcast, please email me at andy at adgrowthadvisors.com. Our theme music is composed and performed by Indianapolis's own Renaissance man, author, speaker, musician, and even therapist, George Middleton. I hope you'll take Nick up on his challenge to do your part to make a positive difference for us here in the heartland. Until next episode, I'm Andy Dix, your hopeful Hoosier host. Thank you for listening. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast is a production of AD Growth Advisors Incorporated, an Indianapolis-based executive coaching and advisory firm. Visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, copyright 2021 by AD Growth Advisors Incorporated. All rights reserved.